impose on you to help me. I need something I need to mention. I have something I need to mention to the church at the end of the service, but I want to do it when we're not live. So if you would help me to remember that I need to do that, I would appreciate it. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It is, it is not a big deal, so don't, don't spend the service going, I wonder what he has to say. There are some handouts, again, simple forms of handouts if you would like. Um, <clears throat> back there in the back, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Thank you, Brother Paul. Anybody wants one? <clears throat> and seriously, I just provide a very simple outline, something for you to follow along, make notes to yourself if they're helpful to you. I don't anticipate that these will go into your treasure trove of precious goods. Um, <clears throat> and let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll kind of walk our way through the passage uh, this evening. Our Heavenly Father, again, <clears throat> we approach this book hopefully with humbleness of spirit and hopefully with eager minds and hopefully with the faith that you as its author will teach us your word. And we pray to know it, whatever the ultimate meaning is, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so tonight, beginning in chapter 5 and verse number 2, which I think you can see from the outline there, we come to the fifth <clears throat> of the cycles that we are following in the Song of Solomon. And as I have endeavored to do, I want primarily to look at it in its poetic form and, and read it as, first of all, a love poem. But there are a couple of issues that just kind of will not go away, and we will tackle them. Let's begin by looking, first of all, just at chapter 5, and verse number two, and, and actually the very first phrase, I sleep, but my heart waketh. And I mentioned this back in chapter three and verse number one, um, <clears throat> that can be by, and is by many people interpreted as one of the dream passages. Um, quite honestly, it may be describing more of what we would call a daydream that springs to action than a dream of sleep. But it is pretty much consensus that chapter 5 and verse number 2 does describe a dream. I sleep, but my heart waketh. And then one of the challenges that goes from there is just how far we should understand this passage to be a dream-like passage. Does it, does it incorporate the whole cycle? Is there a, a clear ending place? And the clarity of the ending place is not something that we discover easily. So, but we are going to treat, treat the passage as kind of a sort of a dream. And, and one, of the, one of the additional reasons why it is viewed as a dream is because chapter 5, this, this cycle, this fifth of the seven cycles in Solomon, is, <clears throat> addresses a little bit of disharmony. Right? It's, it's kind of an unexpected turn of events 
in light of where we were in the last cycle, which describes the marriage and the wedding and the arrival of Solomon's carriage. Um, so if we have had a couple coming to meet each other in the beginning of the book, and we have then their marriage in the kind of the middle third, if that would be a way of dealing with it, how do we deal with this section, the, the, the apparent distress <clears throat> and so right I just I just want to walk you through and I'm not going to comment on them um, apart from just mentioning them to you the the three what what I encountered to be the three largest explanations for this entire body of material chapter 5 verse 2 through chapter 7 and verse number 10 We'll get to this when we get to it, but, but one, one of the more predominant explanations is that what chapter 5 is actually doing is describing the experience of the bride's loss of virginity. That the, the consummation of the marriage in chapter 3 and 4 is dealt with more delicately in chapter number 5. And we will, again, mention this, but there are no shortage of explanations for all of the language in chapter 5 that are not really describing the body parts mentioned, but are simply euphemisms for genitalia. Others argue that chapter 5 is a description of the married couple's first fight. I don't know why you're laughing. I, I am trying to deal. I am trying to deal with this book seriously. Or perhaps it is not a fight, but it is a chapter that is dealing with the realities of married life. If I may tip my hand a little bit, because the last thing that we'll do is try and that I will try and do is provide some guidelines about how we should think of the, the book is that it appears to me to describe the book as being about God's love for us is a woefully inadequate and overtly simplistic explanation of what really is a very complex situation. So there is widespread agreement that when we turn the corner into chapter 5 after the spectacular explanation of the marriage ceremony, that difficulties have arisen. So again, we're going to walk through the passage in its poetic form, and we're going to try and make particular note of who is talking and the kind of things that they are saying. Um, And we're going to recognize the poetry as poetry without getting too far afield into what the poetry, the word poetic words might mean were we to extend them out and to press them. And we're going to do that by following what now I would hope is a rather familiar set of cycles. This one is, there is a little bit of a challenge to this set of, to this cycle, and and we'll address that as we go. But let's start by reading chapter 5, verse 2, down into chapter 6, verse 1. And if you, you have your outline, you see it there. And in this section, this very first section, the lovers are not together. The lovers are not together. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, 
my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. <clears throat> I rose to, up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O ye daughter, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost char so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? So in this section, one of the dominant themes of the section is that the lovers are not together. And what is unusual about this set of cycles is that it doesn't follow a verse-by-verse -verse progression as it has so often done. But they are, the, the concepts are kind of woven throughout the passage. In chapter 5 and verse number 2, it is the female, obviously, who is speaking. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love. My dove. And again, we pose the, the question, is she describing a dream? And, and what is she, if, if she's dreaming, what is she dreaming about? And the answer to that is obvious. She is dreaming about him, but she is not just dreaming about him. Right? The dream is about the conflict. And so it appears that in her dream she hears him speak. This is what he says, open the door. This is what he says, open the door. And again, I'm just going to put this out there because we deal with the never-ending interpretive challenges in the book of the Song of Solomon. Is verse number two as simple and as harmless as her, in her dream hearing him say,
Open the door and let me in. I'm standing out here getting wet and cold. That's what the poem says. Open the door and let me in. I'm standing out here getting cold and wet. Or, and I'm only going to mention this, folks, because I'm coming to the position that so many commentators have so saturated the Song of Solomon with this sexual energy that we have a hard time reading it in any other fashion. Or is it a sexually charged command? And that's the way that a number of interpreters deal with it. And I just want to go back and point out to you, because, and I thought about doing this and perhaps should have done this, but it is chapter 5, verse 2, and chapter 6, verse 1, that are really dealing with the first component of the cycle, that the lovers are not together. Where is he? Right? I am asleep. My heart is awake. He is not here. Question, chapter 6, and verse number 1. Where is he? Where is he? So the first part of the cycle deals with the fact that the lovers are not together. No reason given. Right? We, we should have, if we're tracking through this, and by the way, without going back into all this, this is one of the reasons that some people argue that Song of Solomon is just simply a random collection of poems. That this poem doesn't have anything to do with the previous poem. Because there is no explanation given for why people who are married and happily married in chapters 3 and 4 are now separated in chapter 5. To go back to chapter 5, beginning in verse number 4, down through the end of the chapter, the lovers desire to be together. They are not together for an unknown reason, but they desire to be together. Verse number four, my beloved put, his, put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So in this section, chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, it is obvious that she is the one who is speaking. She says, he put his hand by the hole in the door. Is this, is, is, is this the keyhole? And is, right? One of the questions, and I, I know I keep hammering this, folks, but when we read the Song of Solomon, right, one of the things that we want to know is how... Right, We know to interpret the Bible literally, but we also know we're reading poetry, which usually has some metaphor to it, what is being described. My bowels were moved for him. And the idea there is that she was internally, right? He made my heart go pitter-patter. That's how we would say it. He made my heart go pitter-patter. He wants me, and I want him. I opened for him, but he was gone. And my soul fainted. I was crushed when I realized that he was no longer there. So she speaks, and this is her explanation. And again, folks, is, 
Is she just having a bad dream about this? And, and I think that that's probably what's legitimately happening here. That, that there isn't a physical, right? That, that they haven't had a fight that, you know, she's, that, but that she's having a dream. A dream that he is gone. She asks then <clears throat> for help. Verse number seven, the watchmen that went about the city found me. They said, well, we'll come back to that because that's more the impediment issue. Verse number eight, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. So she asks help in finding him, and she asks help of this always mysterious apparent group of onlookers who are known as the daughters of Jerusalem. So I charge you, daughters, if you find him, tell him that I am lovesick. Tell him that I love him. If you see him, tell him that I love him. And the daughters of Jerusalem, because that is who's speaking in verse number 9, they have questions. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? So the bride says to these daughters of Jerusalem, if you see him, tell him that I love him. Well, what is, what's so special about him? What is so special about this man that we should do this? And so then in chapter, 10, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, she praises him. This, this is, these are some of those more, right? Again, they read kind of odd to us because there are so many agricultural animal references that are used favorably in a way that we wouldn't speak. But from an interpretive standpoint, folks, they are really the simplest parts of the poems to understand. She is just simply, right? What's so special about your guy? Oh, let me tell you. I will tell you what is special about my guy. He is dazzling. He is dazzling. That's verse number 10. My beloved is white and ruddy. That's not a commentary on race, folks. These are Middle Eastern people through and through. They are dark-complected, fairly dark-skinned, black hair, brown eyes. They are Middle Eastern people through and through. This is not a blue-eyed blonde. She doesn't mean he's white in color of skin. She means he is dazzling. He is brilliant. He shines. He is ruddy. My beloved is white and ruddy, which you may have a note, and you should probably be somewhat familiar with this in your King James Bible. The word ruddy always refers to red. In this case, it's used as an adjective. My beloved is. But if you take the noun form, it's just simply the word Adam. Adam. Dirt. Earth. Right? I mean, the name Adam is a beautiful name. I'm not in any way making any fun of the word Adam. But if you really want a strict technical definition of what Adam the first man was, it would be this, folks. He was an earthling. In a world of supernatural spirit beings, Adam is an earthling, made of the dirt, red clay. 
He is a man. My beloved is dazzling. My beloved is, the idea I think there is man, masculine, ruddy, right? He's a man's man. What is, what is your beloved? Well, let me tell you what my beloved is. My beloved is a man. He is a dazzling man. He is head and shoulders above the rest, the chiefest among 10,000. He is a standout. He is a standout. His head is like fine gold. His hair is bushy and black. His eyes are perfect. His cheek, his face, his hands, his legs, he is spectacular. Just look at him. Look at his countenance. He is something to see. He is then, verse number 16, altogether lovely, completely and totally desirable, without flaw. What is, your, what is your beloved? This is what my beloved is. And so the daughters of Jerusalem then in chapter 6 and verse number 1 speak. Well, where did he go? Where, well, then where is he? And I don't think that we need to interpret that as any kind of sinister, sarcastic comment, but just a question. Well, where is he? If you see him, tell him that I love him. What's so great about him? Let me tell you what is great about him. Well, where do you suppose he went? So the lovers are not together, but they desire to be together. And then as always, there is some impediment or obstacle to their being together. And that is chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? And there's some debate, and I don't know that we can really know the answer as to who it is that is exactly speaking in verse number three. Is she protesting, I've put off my coat? But I would be inclined to think that it is him. Right? He is outside. He is ready to come in. I'm standing out here getting wet. I've taken my coat off, and I've got my shoes off. Or I got my, or she's maybe she's the one arguing. And I've got my feet washed. I'm inside. I'm ready for bed. You're outside. I can't come to the door and let you in. Washing one's feet was a cultural <clears throat> phenomenon. But I finally did go to let him in. Verse number five. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh. And again, right? I think that part of the best way to understand this drama is that she is having a dream. But, right, these are the things that I dreamt. And it particularly becomes important to try to come up with an answer to that in light of verse number 7. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil from me. Right, So if she, if she is wide awake, if this literally happens, then she is making the point that she was, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to use our language, that she was the victim of police brutality. 
that, that the police found her wandering the streets in the middle of the night and basically assaulted her. Or is she in her dream dreaming about being punished for being reluctant to let him in? And so again, folks, we, we want to look at the poetry, but never in the Song of Solomon are we very far away from having to, to wrestle through some form of interpretation for the poem that we're reading. When he knocked, she wasn't ready to let him in, and so she has been punished for such. So in chapter 5, verses 2 through chapter 6, verse number 1, we have actually three of the cycles put together. They are not together. They desire to be together. There is an impediment to their coming together. Even if it is a dream-like condition, not in reality, but in her dream, there is an obstacle in the dream. And then in chapter 6, verse 2, down through chapter 7, verse number 9, they finally do get together. The question of chapter 6 and verse number 1 posed by the daughters of Jerusalem is, where did he go? And apparently, she knows where he has gone. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. My beloved has gone in, down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am, a beloved, I, so I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. So where did he go? He has gone to his garden, and we belong to each other. And again, folks, right? There are, if, if you look, if you, if you have books, if you go to the books, if you go to the internet, right? There are any number of sources <clears throat> who will argue, and I didn't really get into this, but how did I, <clears throat> how did I, how did I miss this? <clears throat> Or did I not put it in here? <clears throat> I didn't put it in here. The, the references to genitalia, according to many, are multiple in chapter number five. Hand, heads, whole. These are all euphemisms for human genitalia. And I mention that here because there are no shortage of people who believe that garden is another one of those words. That garden is kind of a a euphemistic reference for her body. And so that when, where is he? He went to his garden. He came to me physically. Now again, <clears throat> it, I don't want to be such a strict literalist that I squeeze all the poetry out of the book. But I just have to say I'm not 100% convinced any longer that we have those kinds of liberties expected of us in the text. So she speaks. Where did he go? He's gone to his garden and we belong to each other. He then speaks beginning in verse number four. And one of the ways that we know that is because the word love is in the Hebrew language in a feminine form. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing. 
whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. As a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. So in verses 4 through 9, he is the one now speaking of her. You are beautiful. And the word terrible means awesome. You are beautiful. And you are awesome. And when you look at me, you have won me over. Turn your eyes away from me. The intensity of your gaze overwhelms me. And again, there is the celebration of her teeth and her head. And there are lots of girls, which is, I think, what he's getting at in chapter 6 and verse number 8. Not describing the relatively small size of his harem, although it could be that. But there are lots of girls in verse number 8. 60 queens, 80 concubines, maidens without number, which means, by the way, folks, right, that word virgin there, as we know, has, has both the sexual connotation to it, but also the young unmarried woman connotation to it. So, it's a, and all I'm getting at is that it's a little difficult, I mentioned this in the very earliest part of our study, that this might be a reference to the size of Solomon's harem. And Solomon had princesses and concubines. But there's no record that he had these kind of maidens in his harem. I think the point of the poem is just simply this. Out of all the girls, out of lots of girls, you are unique. That... Right when, when the question is posed to her, what is your beloved above any other beloved? Let me tell you about him. And now when he speaks of her, he says, you are unlike anybody else too. That is, and again, folks, I could not for a moment presume to explain to you why he would use that kind of language about her teeth. I would say again, it probably, guys, and I've been married a long time, so I think that I could make this statement safely. There is no part of a goat to which you should compare your wife. But he does. And he does it to be flattering. But again, when we're reading the book and thinking about its interpretation, these sections are relatively simple. They are sections of flattery. They are expressions of attractiveness and desire. I find you appealing. I find you attractive. I find that you stand out more than any other. There are lots of girls, chapter 6, verse number 8, but you are special. And all of those other girls, they knew it. They praised you. They praised you. And then in chapter 6 and verse number 10, it appears that these daughters of Jerusalem speak again. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, 
and terrible as an army with banners. Who is this out-of-the-world woman? Verses 11 and 12 pose an additional challenge, and they're probably retrospective looking back to verse number 2. Where is your beloved? He went to the garden. Verse number 11, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranate budded. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. I went to the garden. And again, we're, we're, we're posed with, is he literally going to a garden to, to check on the agriculture? Or is he viewing her as his garden and he's going to check on her, on her well-being? Some people argue that verse number 12 is the most difficult verse in Song of Solomon to interpret. Before I knew it, or ever I was aware, before I knew it, or overwhelmingly, and this is some kind of a reference to some unknown virtue or characteristic that we don't really know. My soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. And in verse number 13, it is most likely, again, that the daughters of Jerusalem are speaking. Return, come back. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, I'm back, that we may look upon thee. What will ye see in the Shulamite, as it were, a company of two armies? Then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, we return to the male voice again. And that's pretty easy to see from verse number 1. How beautiful are thy feet with thy shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of the bath Rabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like caramel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love for delights. This thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs. Thereof now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So here is the male voice. And again, this is a a voice that is celebrating the beloved, you are beautiful. And he describes her physically in her beauty. And that much is, is pretty much straightforward in the book. And, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons why I would just wonder if an expression like the garden is some kind of euphemism for her body when he is so free to describe what he finds appealing about her body specifically. 
Why couch it in this kind of vague language when you are willing to talk about her stomach and her breasts and her neck and her eyes and her teeth and her hair? You are then, verses 6 through 9, right here is the summary. You are completely beautiful. And I'm going to mention this to you now, and we will return to it at the very end. Except for those who find in the palm tree a cross, and in the lips of those that are asleep to speak, in verse number 9, the resurrection. But poetically, it is an expression of praise and celebration for the beauty of his beloved. Again, this is not the kind of language we would use. Even if we were going to write a love poem, we wouldn't write one like this. But that is not the issue, folks. People who lived thousands of years ago are under no obligation to think and act and write like Americans. We are under obligation to understand the best we can the way they functioned in their culture. And that brings us then to the last verse we will look at this evening, which is verse number 10. I am my beloved, and his desire is towards me, the transition. I am secure in my beloved's love. He loves me. I have this confidence. And then that will move us into the seventh, or the sixth cycle that we will undertake next week. So... All right, if you